sing is one that we've done once before. Um, this is called Jalali Yesu. You may remember that we sang it. It's um, the phrase that we repeat over and over is in Urdu, um, and it means Almighty Jesus, and the rest of it is in English. And it is a response, so the men, um, the men lead. Jesse and I will lead. I'll pretend to be a man for this morning, and um, the women will echo. <laughs> Thank you for all that you have done in our lives, for making all things new, for making us new, and for offering us all of your gifts. Let our worship honor you and 
be pleasing to you as we sing and pray and read your word and offer our lives to you. We ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Before you're seated, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. Let me just mention a couple of things that uh, are in your bulletin in the life of the church. Uh, we are just about to conclude our three weeks of 24 hours a day prayer. And uh, it's been exciting to, uh, to see the things that God has been doing in our lives and to join our hearts in prayer. There are a few hours still available today and you can sign up after the service this morning. In fact, I think maybe the nine o'clock hour even is available and there's some things this time this morning and this afternoon. So if you would like to, to uh, grab one of those times, you can do that even before you leave this morning or uh, later on today. But we will end at six o'clock this, this evening. And at six o'clock, as a part of the conclusion, we'll be meeting in the uh, community room uh, behind us here and we will have sort of a family gathering. We're going to have some ice cream together and uh, sort of sit around tables as family. And we're going to sing together. We're going to have an opportunity to share. And then we're going to, as we've done each year, we're going to do, do something to uh, commemorate this time of praying together. And uh, we all will participate in that event. So we will, uh, that service will begin at 6. We'll be done around 7. And uh, then I know Koinonia begins at 7 tonight as well. So we hope you'll join us tonight. And again, if you'd like to grab one of the prayer times today before those are done, uh, please feel free to do so. Because of the holiday, we will not be having any activities on Wednesday of this week, so just take note of that. And there are a number of prayer concerns, as always, in the bulletin as we pray for those connected to us and things around the world. There are also a couple of uh, inserts in your bulletin today. One of them is about PRISM, and you see the information about that. And also, uh, faith promise cards. Uh, We are uh, in the process of, again, collecting our faith promise cards. Okay. Uh, we're going to collect those in two weeks on the second. I mean, you can turn them in after that, but we'd like to have be able to collect them all uh, as much as possible two weeks from today on the second of December. So be in prayer now. Take this home with you. And uh, this is God has really done some amazing things in our lives, and uh, we've had the opportunity to hear some stories about how God has supplied uh, the the uh, the acts of faith that people have made. In, in doing this. And so we want to encourage you to take a step of faith as you think about what God may want you to give for uh, our faith promise giving permissions this coming year. At this time, we'd like to invite the ushers forward to receive our morning tithes and offerings. <laughs>
Let's prepare to spend some time in prayer. We're going to begin our prayer time by uh, praying together the prayer of confession that's printed in your bulletin. But before we do that, if you would like to use the altar as your place of prayer, I invite you to come and to join me. Let's pray together. O God, source of all that makes life possible, giver of all that makes life good, we gather to give you our thanks, even as we confess that we have often failed to live our thankfulness. What we have, we take for granted, and we grumble about what we lack. We have squandered your bounty with little thought of those who will come after us. We are more troubled by the few who have more than by the many who have less. Forgive us, O God. In this hour of worship, accept our thanksgiving and teach us to make gratitude and sharing our way of life through the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we do want to thank you today for all of your blessings and ask you to continue to make us grateful people. We are grateful that for the opportunity to pray together these past few weeks. And we thank you that during this time you have kept your promise to be with us and to hear us and to answer us in your infinite love and grace. Help us to trust you more and more in the days and weeks ahead. Let the sign of our trust be evident in our gratitude. Gratitude for blessings that, that just blow us away. And blessings that gently tug at our uncanny ability to take things in our daily lives for granted. We ask your gentle care for the least of your children in our fallen world. For those who suffer innocently because of cruelty. For people caught in the crossfire of war and conflict. For those who are hungry and homeless. Heal, restore, feed, clothe all who are in need. And Father, burden us and your people everywhere to feel such compassion that we beg you to let us soothe and calm and help and love those who are in need. Father, we pray for your healing grace upon those among us who are struggling physically, emotionally, spiritually. We pray that you will heal our relationships that might be fractured and broken. We pray that you will help us in our work and our tasks to be diligent and to be careful to to keep you at the center of all that we are and all that we do. Father, you have revealed yourself among the nations. We pray that you will preserve the works of your mercy, that your church throughout the world may persevere with steadfast faith in the confession of your name. And we pray this, Father, to the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the risen one, our returning King. Amen. Good morning. We're going to be reading this scripture from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. And um, I've been asked to read it in Arabic. And as I read this passage, it struck me how relevant it is to us right now as we celebrate Thanksgiving, but our brothers and sisters, Christians across the Arab world, many of them are going through what this passage speaks of, which is a great tribulation. And many are dying. And this passage speaks of the fact that before the throne of God, they are protected and they will eventually 
never have, they'll have all their tears wiped away. So as, as you follow along, I believe in English, uh, just think of these Christians across the Arab world and lift, lift them up before the throne of grace as we read together. Verse, uh, Revelation 7, beginning at verse 9. Thumma nadratu farayat jamian katiran la yahasa min kul umma wa kibalatu wa shabatun wa lugatun wa wakafin amam al ars wa amam al hamal wa kad artadu tiaba baida wa amsku biliadhum saafa al nahl Wahumma yatafun bisutta alan el kalas min andalahina el jalas al al ars wa min andal hamal. Wa ahtimatu el malika jamian haulin al ars wa mahum al shayuk wal kayanata al hayat al arba wa karu ala wajahum amam al ars sayjuda lil Allah. Kailin, Amin. Li Alahina al Barakatu, wal Majatu, wal Hikmatu, wal Shukratu, wal Jilalu, wal Kadratu, wal Kawatu, il Abadin, Amin. Wasalna ahed al Shayuk, Atalem min huwa hawalin aladin yataradu, il Yaba, smali, al Yayab el Bayeda. وَحَلْ تَعْرَفْ مِنْ أَيْنَ أَتَوْ فَأَجَابَتُهُ إِنْتَ أَعْلَمْ يَسِيدِي فَكَالْ هُوَ لَنْ هُمَّ الَّذِينَ أَتَوْبُوا مِنْ أَدِيكَ الْعَدِيمَ وَكَدْ خَلْصُوا يَبَارَهُمْ وَبَيْدَهُ بِدُمْ الْحَمْلِ لِهَذَا هُمَّ أَمَامَ الْأَرْسَ اللَّهِ يَخِدْمَتُ فِي هَيْكَلْ لَيْلًا وَنَحَارًا والجالس على الأرض يبسطوا خيمته عليهم، فلان يجوا ولان يتعشوا ولان يضربوا الشمس ولا أي حارن، لأن الحمل الذي في وسط الأرض يرامو ويخدهم إلى يبناها ماء الحياة ويمشوا الله كل داخي من أينهم، آمين.
Father, we give all honor and glory and blessing to you as we worship you. Speak deeply into our hearts and our souls to see you and to hear you. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. There's a lot about the book of Revelation that we don't understand. You know, there, there are a lot of things there that are confusing to us. There are all kinds of theories that develop out of the way people interpret the book of Revelation. And you read through it and you wonder what's symbol, what's figurative, what's literal. And, and there's just a lot of uncertainty and confusion associated with the book of Revelation. But there are, there are some things about the book of Revelation that are very clear to us. And there is no argument about it. One of the things about the book of Revelation that is exceedingly clear is that when everything is done, when the dust settles, when, when the end comes, we will understand like never before that Jesus wins. That, that, that's the bottom line. Now, it doesn't mean that everything in life will be simple and uncomplicated, that there won't be difficulties, because we know that's just a part of living in this fallen world. But in the end, the risen Christ has conquered. The the lamb who was slain rules. And, And there is really no competitor to him. He is Lord. But there is also something in the book of Revelation that I think is crystal clear about the demographics of the eternal kingdom, of of the people who are a part of that kingdom. And and it, it goes back to the idea that we've been tracing over the course of the last 10 weeks about our spiritual family tree, that beginning with Adam and Eve, we are connected to people of God through the centuries. And some of them we adore, some of them we'd like to ignore. But they're all a part of our spiritual family tree. And when we get this, and and John gives us this image of the kingdom in heaven. And and we see in that image the demographics of what the kingdom is going to be like. And John is very clear. And he talks about it in chapter 5 and chapter 7 and again in chapter 14. And he tells us in those places that the kingdom of God is made up of persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Every one. We see it in chapter 5, verse 9, as he, as he talks about this, these people who are in heaven. Every language, every tribe, every people, every nation. We see it again in chapter 7, verse 9. Every language, every tribe, every people, every nation. This is what the heavenly kingdom looks like. It's it's what we see there. I think Randy Alcorn is right. In his book, Heaven, he says that that as as Jerusalem now is a melting pot of all kinds of ethnicities and people, so will the new Jerusalem be too. It will be this place of diversity. I mean, when John looks at this scene in heaven, he does not see people who look all the same. He sees nationalities. He sees people groups. He sees tribes. He even hears languages. And there's something about that, that idea of the languages of heaven. And I think in my mind, I've always had this idea that we are all going to speak the same language. And I typically thought that's going to be English. If there's one language, it's probably going to be Hebrew. But he he seems to tell us that there are all of these languages in heaven. And that, you know, and and Alcorn says that, you know, that's what his perspective is, that we'll have all these languages. The difference is we'll be able to learn the languages a lot more quickly. And we will want to learn those languages more quickly. Because we understand that language says so much about a person's identity. About who they are. And we will want to learn everything we can about each other because we love each other. 
And instead of saying, why would I care about learning that language? As though those people are not important. We won't be able to wait to learn every language possible because of how much we care for each other. And this melting pot that we see on earth, I think we will see in heaven. And John describes this diversity in heaven. Now, we, we think about that. And we say, okay, that's great, but so what? I mean, what, what difference does that make? Okay, so there's going to be diversity in heaven. Great. Well, the point is, if that's what the heavenly kingdom looks like, then shouldn't it be a priority for us to try to do everything we can to make the earthly kingdom look like that too? I mean, Jesus says... Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What we see about your kingdom in heaven, we want to come to this kingdom, to your kingdom as it's, as it's revealed on earth. And that has to be a part of it. It has to be a part of it. It's this diversity. And, and somehow to get an image of the church... As, as more than just everybody being the same or the hierarchical nature of the church, but that we are all together as the church. Because in, it's not just about the fact that there's diversity in the eternal kingdom, but also that he says in chapter 5, verse 10, that we will be a kingdom of priests to serve our God. We're going to be royalty in heaven. We're going to be priestly royalty in heaven with the purpose of serving God. And what I see when I hear him say that, after he's talked about languages and tribes and people and nations, that's what the kingdom looks like. And he says all of those people, all of the people in the heavenly kingdoms are going to be royal priests to serve God. And that ought to say something to us about how we view people who are different from us in the kingdom. Because we have a tendency to think that there is some kind of hierarchy of the kingdom. But this image that John gives us is equality in the kingdom. That every person, it doesn't matter what tribe they're from, it doesn't matter what language they speak, what nation, what nation they were born in, what their race is, it doesn't matter their personality type or their socioeconomic class or their education level, none of that matters. In heaven, we are all equals. I think it says something to us about how we view gender on earth. Because he's very clear about saying, this is not something that men are going to be kingdom of priests or women for that matter, but all people are kingdom and priests to serve our God. And if that's what it's going to look like in heaven, where all of us are royal priests, why would we think it would be any different while we're here on earth? That we are equals together. And whatever our gifts may be, we use them. And we're encouraged to use them. And whatever diversity there may be among us, it all comes together in the kingdom of God. Because that's what the kingdom in heaven looks like. And that ought to be what the kingdom on earth looks like. But I think we struggle to really grasp that. I think this is particularly a struggle. I mean, it's a struggle for human beings in general. But I think it's a particular struggle for people who live in the West and more specifically North America and more specifically the United States of America. Because we have a tendency to think we are the center of how everything is judged and valued. It's about how we see things. That's, that's what's right. I mean, we do it all the time as a nation, right? I mean, we, we tell the rest of the world, this is how you run a corporation. This is what we do and this is what you ought to do. And so we tell them to set, you know, you set up corporations where you have a board of directors, a CEO makes a whole bunch of money, and the people who are the worker bees eke out an existence. That's how you do it. And we tell the rest of the world, this is how you do it. 
And we do that with, with all the things that we do. It, it is in the mindset of us as Americans that we have figured out how to do things. And the rest of the world will be a better place if they do it the way we do it. Now, it's not that we don't have anything to contribute. We have lots to contribute. But that mindset gets into our heads and it gets into the church. And we start thinking that any connection we have with the global church is about what we can teach them, what they can learn from us. And seldom do we ever think, what can we learn from them? What do they have to give to us? Because we have come to the conclusion that we don't need anything from anyone else. We're good, thank you. And it creates this mindset of the kingdom as we're just a little bit better than everybody else. We're just a little bit more significant than everybody else. If everyone could see things the way we do and do things the way we do them, everything will be fine. And I'll be honest with you, God has really been burdening my heart about that. And I was thinking back to, back to the Garden of Eden and the story of Adam and Eve as when we started this journey. And if the sin in the Garden of Eden is primarily pride and arrogance, then the solution to that sin is humility. And humility says, it's not just about what others can learn from me, but it's what I can learn from them. And as I said, God has been working on my heart about that. Earlier this fall, we were out at Activities Fair. The college hosts a, a fair in a, an afternoon where all the organizations and clubs and groups set up tables. And they use it as a, a recruiting tool. And they were very gracious to let us as a church set up a few tables. And we use it for recruiting. And since I, I don't really recruit in the, into ministries like uh, the other pastors do, I, I just sort of hang out. I like walking around, like, like interacting with all the other people who are there. Some I know, some I don't. Meeting a lot of people, finding out about the clubs and organizations. And so I just spend a couple of hours just meandering around and walking through. And, you know, you, you find the, there's the, you know, the, the Nerf club, Nerf gun club that they get together and, you know, have a Nerf wars. And, and you have all the different groups and clubs that, that come about, are on campus. And, and this year I, I had a chance to talk with the people in the Black Heritage Club. And we were talking, and they were asking me about what we were doing at the church, and, and I was telling them about the series and doing this, and, and they said, well, you should come and speak to our group. And I said, and you know, I started to say, yeah, that would be great. And then I realized the Lord, the Holy Spirit kind of prompted me about these things he'd been talking to me about. And I said, well, I'd be glad to come and talk to you, but what I'd really like to do is just come and listen to you. I'd just like to know about how, how you view the world and... And, and the experiences that you've had and, and, and the ways in which your life is different than mine because I want to learn from you and I need to learn from you. And, and I could tell that that meant tons to them. And I meant it. And God's still working on my heart about it. And I see still how much I want to control things and how much we as, as the church in the West loves to control things. We're continually wrestling with that. Francis Bacon, the 17th century philosopher, wrote about uh, various idols. And one of the idols he wrote about was the idol of the cave. And he talked about how we, it's as though we live in a cave and our view of the world is simply from looking out the entrance of the cave. And that's all we see. And that's how we judge the world. And that's how we value the world. And that's how the world exists to us. By looking through our opening in our cave. No wonder we have such a narrow view of the world. And that sense of of arrogance that it's all about how we think and it's all about the way we do it. And it's all about what is important to us. Someone said to me that a certain unnamed French professor at the college always begins his classes by saying... Let me just be clear here. French is not a translation of English. There is something to needing to say that, right? Because something in our minds wants to believe that everything revolves around us. 
that we are the center of, of the kingdom. When the scripture is very clear, Jesus is the center of the kingdom. And we just join in with everybody else sitting, standing, worshiping around the throne and the lamb who sits there. I think there are, you know, it it really becomes an issue of control for us. And you see this come out in a variety of ways. I I was looking recently, I was looking at the prayer room this week and listening to the map of the world on the wall there. And this is basically what that map looks like. And it reminded me of most of the maps that I saw when I was younger that looked like this. And you, you can see the difference. If you go to the next slide, you can see the difference. You notice the difference? In the first map, the Europe is sort of in the middle and it divides in the middle of the ocean. In the second map, the United States is in the middle. In order to do that, you have to cut Russia in half in order to, to make the map look that way. And there is something about just that whole idea of, of how we portray the world. I, I, see, the thing is, what, what we wrestle with is that our experiences are what we think are normal. Whatever our experiences are, that's our view of normal. I, I talk about this with couples in premarital counseling. Because you're bringing together two people who have lived a number of years with normal. And when they come together, there's maybe two different normals. And things happen, right? I use the example of, of Christmas. And just how you open Christmas gifts. Some people open Christmas gifts Christmas Eve, some Christmas morning, some Christmas night, some epiphany. And some people, when they open gifts, they, they give hand one person a gift. They open it. Everyone watches If it's closed, they may try it on. If it's some object, gadget, they may get it out, put it together a little bit. And it may take five, ten minutes or more for that person to to open that gift until they're done. And then you hand a gift to the next person and they do the same thing. And in other families, everybody sits in front of their pile of gifts and you say go and just paper and stuff's flying everywhere. And I've talked to enough people to know whichever one you grew up with doing... That's right. That's the right way to do it. And I say to people, why is that the right way to do it? And the only answer that comes is because that's what we always did. Well, of course, that's our normal. And that's so often how we view the church and the rest of the world is that this is our normal and it's the right way, not just one way. And when you look at the way the, the church in the world operates, you know, a lot of it, you know, we, we have the wealth. We have the majority of the wealth of the world. And, and we often, even subconsciously, use that to, to make sure that people are doing what we think is right as we give that money to the church around the world. And there's certainly wisdom in, in giving money to people in a right way. But something in the back of my mind wonders what would happen if we simply said, this is the money that we want to give to this church and we just hand it to them, all of it, all at one time and just say, we trust you and we trust the Holy Spirit. Here you go. I wonder what would happen. I think we're sitting there thinking to ourselves, whoa, 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 wait a second. You know, what, if, what if they don't know what to do with it? What if, what if it does doesn't come out right. What if it gets wasted? And we say that as though we never waste money, right? I heard a Costa Rican pastor once say, or I heard about it, he said, I don't know what would happen if we tried that, but it might be interesting to give it a shot. And there's something about that, of that sense of control that we have because our way is right And if the rest of the world would just learn our way of thinking and our way of doing things, then they would be right too. When we think about how we express our faith, in the West, it tends to be our ability to articulate our faith in a way that convinces people of the truth. In much of the world, it's about how we live our faith. Generosity, kindness, compassion. 
It's not that we don't do those things or that they don't articulate their faith, but it's what's central, primary. For us, independence is right near the top of what it means to, to live and to be a Christian. In most of the rest of the world, it's community. In many places of the world, sharing what we have is a far higher good than winning. It's just, you know, the kingdom is about us remembering that there are people who are followers of God who have much to teach us. And we ought to embrace that and welcome that. See, the kingdom is so much bigger than we think. I love the way the TNIV translates uh, John 14 too. It says, my father's house has plenty of room. I like that. Because something about that just says that the kingdom is so much bigger than we tend to see it. And think of it. Even in our best moments, when we think we have a large view of the kingdom, it's still much smaller than God's view of the kingdom. Because his view of the kingdom is always bigger and higher and deeper and longer and wider and greater than ours is. Because we are continually putting barriers in front of people for the kingdom. We're continually saying, you just got to jump through these hoops that satisfy us or the kingdom. And why do we do that? Why is our theology so often about making the kingdom smaller? Is it control? Is it power? Is it arrogance? Yes, yes, and yes. Because that's what we do as human beings. Something in us wants to believe that we have figured it all out. And the kingdom is so much bigger than what we have figured out. What we figure out is wonderful and it's important. And God has blessed us and we need to share that. But always in a spirit of humility. And always thinking not just what we can teach others, but what others can teach us. And the church and the kingdom is so much bigger than any of us. That's what I love about coming to this table. Because at this table, we all come with all of our diversity. We come with all the different ways in which we live and think and act. And and we all come together. And at this table, those differences are not wiped away. It's not as though we come and we, we just sort of become clones of one another. But we bring all of our diversity together and it's united in Christ. Because at this table, we come, all of us, with all of our differences in need of what Christ offers us. And recognizing that the kingdom is not just me. Recognizing that I'm not the center of the kingdom. He is. And that we're in the kingdom only because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Psalm 133, verse 1 says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. I think God is thrilled when his people live in unity. I think that's why the evil one is continuing trying to divide us. And God is continuing trying to bring us together. And there are some scholars who believe that, that the image of God cannot be revealed in a single person fully. Or fully in even a group of people. But only in the church. The whole church. The whole wide world of the church. Only all of us together, bringing all of our uniqueness and our diversity, only when we all come together are we truly able to reveal the image of God. There's something about that that has enamored me as I watch the tree in the prayer room grow leaves. 
You know, it started out as just a bare tree and everybody who's come to pray has put their name on a leaf and put it into that tree and this is what it looks like now. And all the leaves are different and all the people those names represent are different. Look how beautiful the tree is. All of us together. If that's the picture of the kingdom of God in heaven. Ought it not be to be our goal to do everything we can to try to make that the kingdom of God on earth? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this image of the kingdom that you have given us. And we pray that you will forgive us for all of the ways in which we fall so short of your plan. Forgive our arrogance and our pride, our control. And help us, Father, to be enamored with the humility of Christ. Help us to see our brothers and sisters here and around the world the way you see them. And that together, as one, as equals in the kingdom, we would be your servants to bring more and more people to you. Father, we remember the night in which Jesus met with his disciples. And that night he took bread and and he gave thanks to you and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, take, eat. For this is my body which is broken for you. And then he took the cup and again he gave thanks to you and he gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant shed for your sins and sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Father, we pray that your blessing would come and rest upon the bread and the cup of which we are about to partake. Let it be food for our souls, encouragement for our hearts. And the acknowledgement of your heavenly kingdom's diversity. Thank you, Father, for your great gifts and for your people and for the church. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. We're going to receive communion this morning by the mode of intinction. This means to dip in as you're released by rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup and eat it. And then you can return to your seat by the outside aisle. The altar is always open. We also practice open communion to us in church. Maybe the first time you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open to Christ and with a desire to, to be a part of his kingdom, then we invite you to come and to receive these gifts from our gracious Father. If coming to the front is difficult for you, or if you simply prefer, we do have a tray of bread and cups, and we would be happy to serve you in your seat. Just let the usher know as your row is released.
the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.